Welcome to the Hublic Sphere. This is a content warning for the following episode. Please be advised that there is discussion of sexual and gendered violence, rape and sexual harassment in the workplace. If these topics will be disturbing for you, you might want to skip this episode or otherwise, please proceed with caution. Thank you. Welcome to the Hublix Fair and to this our fourth episode and the first of 2021. So happy new year to everyone listening. I'm Sahar Ahmed, a PhD candidate in the School of Law at Trinity College Dublin. I'm researching religion and human rights law and I'll be your host today. I am a Pakistani Muslim woman living in Ireland. And you'll see in a few minutes once we meet our guests why I'm stating these identities and why this assertion of identity can be quite powerful in many different ways. The theme of this season is power and its modalities. This episode is about identities and how minoritizing and racializing minorities can limit our power in patriarchal power structures, but how that very oppression can be subverted by those identities to reclaim power. This very special show today is a conversation with three incredibly powerful women in their own right, and I can't wait to hear from them. My guests today are Dr. Arpita Chakraborty, an academic and postdoc fellow at Dublin City University here in Dublin, Maria Saleem, an Islamic feminist from India, speaking to us today from New Delhi, Zoya Rahman, a feminist organizer and researcher, joining us today from Islamabad. This is possibly the most international episode we'll have on the pod. Thank you all for being here and making it work across three different time zones. And so with that, would the three of you like to tell us a little about yourselves and your work? Zoya, how about we start with you? My name is Zoya Rahman. I am currently based in Islamabad, Pakistan, and I've been working in the development sector since 2014. My areas of interest are the law um, itself, of course, because I have a background in law, digital rights and digital justice and, and feminism and, and feminist research. I helped organize the Zadi March. Currently, I'm a part of Women Democratic Front. Thank you, Zoya. Maria, how about you? I like to identify as an Indian Muslim woman. I'm currently a fellow journalist uh, with the Interpress Service, and I'm also a former fellow and mentor for the OHCHR's Minority Fellowship Program. Um, I've been working on issues around violence against women online and offline, on questions of identity and nationalism uh, in India. And my focus and interests are work with women of my community, that is Muslim women, uh, whether it's in the sphere of family or society or law, etc. I pursue this through um, both activism on the ground and by writing. I've been writing uh, on portals like Al Jazeera and The Wire, amongst others. I have also worked extensively in different countries. I've worked in Thailand for two years. I've, I've worked with Amnesty, which I left after facing Islamophobia. Maybe we can talk about it later. Thanks, Maria. Arpita? Hi, I'm an Irish Research Council-funded postdoctoral scholar. This project is a collaboration between Dublin City University and ActionAid Arden, where I look at sexual violence survivors' access to medical healthcare. And uh, before this, I, I have been living in Ireland for six years now, so I also pursued my PhD here from Dublin City University again. And I have been a chair of the Shebel Network of Feminist and Gender Studies Scholars. What I would like to focus on today is my experience of academia in Ireland. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much, Arpita. Today, as I'm sure um, has become obvious, we're going to be talking about some very narrow, very easy to manage, very condensable topics, uh, which can completely be understood within a five-minute summary. <laughs> when talking about modalities of power, we've discussed how researching history and the place of activism in reclaiming it is incredibly important in episode one. Uh, we also talked about institution institutionalization of power and the damage it can do to vulnerable people in the context of the Magdalene laundries and mother and baby homes in episode two. Um, we talked about the power of rereading books can have in terms of memory formation in episode three. With that idea of the kinds of power identity has, I thought it's important to speak to the three of you, all brown women who occupy different marginalized spaces, whether it be gender, religious identity, or both, and wield them powerfully to fight for rights, which is almost a form of radical vulnerability to me, frankly speaking. Is this something that resonates with you and your work? Maria, I thought we might start with you for that. Yes, Sahar, thank you so much. Um, so I am an Indian Muslim woman. I come from a country which has a 14% uh, percent, uh, Muslim population, the second largest Muslim population in the world after Indonesia. And I I have I've been amazed with the kind of intersectionality of the discrimination that I have realized that I have been facing since I was a kid. Um, never looked at it as discrimination uh, when I was younger. I didn't look at it from the point of view of power and structures and you know class and caste and all of that till I became um, uh, uh, financially independent, left home, and I realized how power and power structures, different kinds of power, of course, play a huge role in uh, my everyday life, my everyday living. I became an Islamic feminist. I wasn't one when I was earlier. Never, never did I thought that I would become an Islamic feminist. As an Indian Muslim woman today, I have to navigate through not just fighting within my own community, the patriarchy within my own community, but to not be looked at as uh, someone who uh, is uh, not giving in to you know the larger cause of Islamoph because it's Islamophobia. I don't talk about your rights as a Muslim woman. So you know there's so many areas that I'll, I'm having to navigate, especially in the past ten years, Sahar. And what you said completely, completely resonates uh, with the work that I've been doing so far. Maria, can I just ask you to explain to our listeners who might not be very familiar with the concept of Islamic feminism? So I introduced you as an Islamic feminist as well, but. Um, could you perhaps tell us a little bit about what you mean by that? I will not go by an academic definition. I will go by my definition, which people be, will be able to understand. In India, for instance, you know, I just don't call myself a feminist because um, within the feminist movement also in India, what has happened is, and like in other parts of the world, a certain kind of feminism has, you know, sort of takes, uh, is, is, is considered to be higher or considered to be right than the other kinds of feminism. As a Muslim feminist, when I go to my community and talk about Muslim women's rights, I cannot talk about things like, um, you know, I have to start with the basics like education, family structures, etc. I can't talk about, for, for instance, you know, like there's no need to wear a bra or, uh, you know, you can color, you can shave your head. If I so, say those things, I will not even be allowed to enter my community. So what I do as an Islamic feminist is I believe and I really do believe that the Quran is a source of law has given women a lot of rights. And I use the Quran as a source to then tell the women of my community, this is why you need to keep fighting for your rights. It's important, equality is important. And as believing women, it's much easier then to convince them that what's happening around them, um, you know, the fact that they have to give up their say, right to inheritance or right to be equal, 
I tell them that the Quran and the God that you believe in has given you these rights. And if you, you know, so you, you are an Islamic feminist, you believe in feminism and you believe also in the source of this feminism. So just to... Yeah, no, that's great, Maria. And like, certainly as someone um, who is looking into the different kinds of nuances that can come from I, occupying these different spaces of being a believer and an academic and a feminist, um, these sort of nuances are incredibly important to me personally as well. Arpita, I would just like to come to you now because Maria mentioned having to have an addendum almost to your feminist identity when dealing with you know, the majority feminist movements. Um, have you felt this important in your work? And also even coming back to the to the question of radical vulnerability, does this resonate with you um, in, in terms of what Maria said at all? I absolutely loved how Maria started saying like when, like she didn't think of herself as a, as a feminist or she didn't think of herself as uh, in that, w- relate to that identity, right? So I, for example, uh, I have grown up in India in a very small town and uh, but I have been privileged in the sense that I'm, I'm, I have an upper caste identity. And with that, of course, comes its own sets of privileges, as I keep saying. And I think it's important that we keep reminding ourselves of our own positions of privilege before we start talking about the kind of discriminations that we face as well. It was only when I came to Ireland in 2014 that I saw myself for the first time as a brown woman. I lived in a world where that identity did not anything at all and then you come to a predominantly white country where uh, you come to a department where now even now in 2020 I'm only one of the two uh, women of color faculties in the whole department and that makes you and of course there were there were um, cases of uh, racism racist attacks from from children making racist comments uh, which make you reflect and uh, you surprisingly become aware of two things. First, that you lived a life of privilege before and you identify in a renewed way that you hadn't. And then you also recognize uh, how race plays a role in your everyday life or identity in Ireland. And I think in the past six years, when I, uh, since I've started living in Ireland, it has become a rapidly changing, at least in Dublin, it is a rapidly changing uh, atmosphere, right? So for example, I still remember that in, back in 2014, I would only see probably another person of color if I went to the city center. It's, uh, it's not that rare anymore to find a person who looks like you in this part of the country. But government policies, and we can talk about this later, but I think government policies and uh, social acceptance are two very different things in Ireland. I think that is something which is very different from, for example, American racial, American racial politics that we see, that social acceptance is probably a bit more here, but the, the political structure has completely failed to reflect on the rapidly changing social atmosphere. Uh, yes, there has been uh, repercuss- repercussions of that, of course, and it kind of uh, renews your political positions, your thoughts and ideas about how you position yourself in your everyday politics. Yeah, absolutely. The fact that I have to keep stressing that my feminism is intersectional, it feels redundant to me also at the same time, but also incredibly important um, to sort of to, to identify myself as being apart from the mainstream white feminism almost in that sense. Um, so I think, so I think Arpita, what you're saying really hits home with me as well. Zoya, I'd like you to come in now a little bit because 
you mentioned being a part of a movement and being an organizer in a movement that identifies as an effect an inherently socialist feminist movement and that has connotations inherently of a certain secularity that might perhaps differ from for example what maria was talking about but yet you are in pakistan at the moment which we know is a very religiously charged atmosphere um so i just want to bring you in um on where you stand with all of these issues I feel that um, this tension between religiosity definitely exists within the larger feminist movement in Pakistan. And I think obviously um, being able to converse um, through certain terms within this movement is also a matter of like privilege because I think that I can sort of discard a lot of things or perhaps ma make certain claims that perhaps other women in Pakistan cannot make. Similarly, like I, I'm a firm believer of the fact that solidarities cannot be assumed, nor are they organic, because uh, I, again, I'm in a position of privilege because I happen to be a Punjabi woman in an urban center, and that is where I organize. So obviously, the, there are a lot of other struggles going on in Pakistan that I may not, I mean, I'm, I'm not a part of in the sense that it's not possible to for many of us to see eye to eye on things. For instance, you know, if we speak of the Aurat Azadi March that we organized earlier this year, and that's being organized since the past few years, um, there are a lot of uh, feminist activists in Balochistan who may not see themselves being represented by such a movement. So I, I think that there are definitely a lot of tensions within the larger feminist movement in Pakistan. But I think just sort of staying with those tensions and trying to come to terms with them, as well as having conversations about how we can be more inclusive is something that's become very central to the movement this past decade. And perhaps we're also trying to, I guess, work on understanding how the feminist movement itself may have like made mistakes in the past, of course, like not deliberately, and how perhaps those mistakes or tensions can be bridged um, in today's time as well. Zoya, can you tell us a little bit about what the Aurat Azadi March is? So the Aurat Azadi March or the Aurat March, it depends on what city you're a part of. Um, for instance, like the Lahore and Karachi chapters have the Aurat March every year. That's essentially the, the eighth March um, sort of uh, protest that happens across the world. I think it's taken on a new identity these past few years because a lot of it, for instance, has become uh, a lot of the work we do around these protests has become very visible on social media. A lot of the work associated with, I guess, the identity of the Aurat March or Aurat Azadi March has um, become sort of interlinked with the kind of placards you see. And I think one change that like can be seen through these events that have been taking place these past few years is that you see a lot more conversation around sexuality and around violence in the home, which is actually not happening, um, at least like within our sort of popular imagination in, in the 90s, for instance, or even the 2000s, which actually saw a lull also, you know, as far as the feminist movement is concerned. So I think, yeah, it's, it's the same event. It's just taken on a different, perhaps more visual um, and urban identity. But that, of course, in itself can be unpacked because there are problems with having like an urban feminist movement as well, you know, because there are a lot of other movements and, and other um, groups of feminists that are not being taken into account. And perhaps those are the kinds of tensions and criticisms that we need to work on more in the future. That mention of sexuality is inherent, like keeps bringing me back to 
the dichotomy of moving to Ireland um, in the midst of um, Repeal the Eighth, which for Zoya and Maria, who are not in Ireland at the moment, um, or any of our, any other listeners that we might have, was a referendum that we had uh, in Ireland to repeal a constitutional amendment uh, that banned abortion and made it illegal. And like I, I landed in the middle of the debate around it. Um, and nature of conversation that was inherently sexualized to to give agency um, to people who wanted to have abortions at home safely and legally um, was brought a new dimension to me as a Pakistani woman and the conversations we have around that back home. Um, Arpita, you also would have experienced something similar as me having landed in Ireland around the same time. And, and I'm fascinated by your research as well, because you are coming at this from an academic standpoint. Um, you look at sexualities and masculinities um, um, in South Asia, uh, in India, um, and then re- can relate it to your work in Ireland. So I'm fascinated what you think about this and how and how you found yourself um, thinking about these things in Ireland a little more. So I came a bit earlier than the repeal um, uh, movement. So I came when the yes referendum was happening, which is uh, for Maria and uh, Zoya. It was an, a referendum before the repeal one. Uh, it, it was about giving the right of a marriage to uh, couples who were um, non-traditional couples, basically. That conversation was fascinating to me because that was also around the same time that in India, uh, homosexuality was recriminalized. Section 377 came back, right? And here I come and I find that they are having a new conversation. And India and Ireland, in a way, I find many parallels, you know, like like Sahar, you keep saying, like there are so many parallels because this country has also been traditionally quite religious and quite conservative. And in the recent past two decades, there has been like a sea of uh, change. And to see that change has, there is a transformative energy it's when it comes to feminist and sex, uh, politics of uh, feminism and sexuality in Ireland, right? But then the repeal movement was surprising for me because that debate had long, the abortion debate had long been settled in India, right? Which also kind of appended the notion of the first world uh, developed country and developing country because coming from a developing country, I could not believe when I came that you abortion rights are not there for Irish women and um, in fact like it is also like I should mention here that um, even though the uh, it was a successful referendum and abortion rights are women in Ireland now do have abortion rights but still there are limitations right for example if uh, someone wants to terminate a pregnancy which does not have fetal abnormality or any other reason they still have to travel they still have to travel to uk and for immigrant women this is particularly difficult because in order to travel you have to secure visa and that visa process takes at least a month which is a crucial period of time when for a pregnant person because there is a statutory limitation of the time in which you can get an abortion. So these debates, like I, I kind of find it a bit concerning that the repeal debate looks like it is closed and it has come to an end, whereas for many people, for many parts of the population, it has not. I, I find it very uh, encouraging also that uh, Apart from the repeal movement, we saw a renewed interest in the integration of immigration politics. 
that there were groups, um, immigrant feminists, for example, Mujeres do Brazil or Merge, who realized that there needs to be political organization for immigrant women in order for their voices to be heard, even within feminist spaces like this, right? So that would have been a significant achievement of the repeal movement as well. It's amazing how what both of them uh, have just talked about resonates so much with me. I want to start with Zoya and, uh, you know, think about what she said about that urban, non-urban divide within the feminist movement here in India. Feminists like me and friends of mine who identify as Dalit feminists, Dalit, for those who don't know, are former untouchables um, in, in South Asia. And there's a lot of uh, information available um, if you want to look up. So, you know, as Islamic feminists and Dalit feminists, it is so difficult for us to not just navigate these spaces with upper caste or Savarna feminists. And I'm so grateful to Arpita for recognizing that privilege, you know, that she says she has as, as an upper caste, which very few of my feminist colleagues actually do realize that they have. Um, even, you know, in, in the past one year, India has been there lots of laws, etc., that that uh, discriminatory laws, etc., that we can talk about later that are being passed. And as, uh, you know, as Dalit feminists, as Islamic feminists, we have to even explain things like why sometimes or mostly a hijab is not uh, as painful uh, practice that our other feminist upper caste friends think it is. Um, for Dalit feminists, for instance, when there's atrocity, you know, if our, our uh, other feminist colleagues, uh, the Savarna feminists, as we call them, or the upper caste feminists, they want to take the mic away from us and speak on our behalf, where a lot of us are absolutely capable of voicing our own concerns. And this is also reflected in academia, where, so you'll, you'll be amazed, uh, Sahar, Zoya and Arpita, when I have approached um, uh, uh, portals to write about Muslim women having worked with them for 12 years I'm told how an upper caste man has already pitched a story and he'll be writing about Muslim women and the discrimination they face instead of me so that is one thing and also um, Arpita just to uh, you know as fellow Indians just to reflect you know it's nice to know that you know women this in India this whole abortion um, you know the laws etc rights abortion rights etc um, had been settled long and um, 377 same sex marriage just yesterday in the news Sahar in India and Sahar knows India more than anybody <laughs> in the world that I know of like she knows of everything from the geographies to God knows what not so I don't even have to explain anything to her I Yesterday promise in the I am not secretly an Indian. I promise. <laughs> normal marriages. The police in the state of Uttar Pradesh barged into a normal marriage where a non-Muslim and a Muslim were getting married with their families consenting and they stopped the marriage because they have laws on love jihad. And for those who do not understand the term, it's basically an absolutely absurd conspiracy theory, which assumes that men in Muslim men in India lure women who are non-Muslim into marrying them to convert them and increase their population. There's no love. The woman who is non-Muslim has no agency of her own and she's fooled into marrying this good-looking Muslim man. So that's the fight we are fighting. Basic consent in marriage the state has to consent to your marriage. So yeah, I just I was just itching in to uh, add this. If I can just join in on what uh, Maria said. Uh, so in India, we have the fundamental right to choose our own partners, to choose our own religion. And that is a, a, that is a right that has been secured as a fundamental right by the constitution, right? 
and we can choose who we marry, we can choose what religion we can follow. But under the current government, uh, the love jihad idea has been brought back. It actually started, and I have written about it uh, in other uh, spaces. The love jihad idea actually has been started by conservative Hindus back in the 1920s. And it was a ploy. Even then, there was no uh, statistical basis. There was no idea of this. But I would, what I would like to stress is that currently, the way love jihad has been brought back, even Christian missionaries in Kerala and Tamil Nadu actually have a big role to play in exacerbating this whole idea that there is a Muslim conspiracy of getting uh, Hindu women and Christian women uh, and converting them and making them produce more and more Muslims. So the ultimate uh, agenda of this conspiracy is to change the dynamics of the demography of the Indian population, right? Which is a ridiculous concept in itself, uh, recognizing the fact that more than 70% of Indian population is currently Hindu. But I think we are seeing the rise of uh, this new uh, conservative right-wing political forces across the world. I mean, it's not only Donald Trump, it's not only Bolsonaro, Erdogan or Modi, but these kind of Islamophobic ideas have taken root everywhere. And it is very predominant here in Ireland as well. I'm listening to Maria and Arpita talk, uh, but as a Pakistani woman, uh, my brain is like, my mind is being blown right now, right? The problem is that in Pakistan, Islam is often weaponized to silence dissenting voices. And there is this constant battle going on regarding who is like the perfect, the right, the Pakistani Muslim, basically, in Pakistan. And I mean, we know that there's a lot of like disenfranchisement of uh, minority uh, Islam groups, such as Muslims who are Muslims who are Ahmadis, you know, like Ahmadis are disenfranchised to the point that you actually have to sign a declaration in your passport in which you renounce Ahmadis, basically, and say that they're not Muslims. And they like if you are even if MD were to vote in the elections, they actually have to first acknowledge that they are MD and therefore non-Muslim. They have to, even though they believe in Islam, they have to call themselves non-Muslim. So you know this question of second-class citizenship in Pakistan and like it's I think religion lies at the like it's it's the heart of the problem. I feel in Pakistan at least. But the problem then is that I think, and this is something obviously like that's sort of uh, recurrent in the feminist movement as well, that when you're fighting the state, and of course the state is sort of weaponizing its own sort of version of, politicized version of Islam, you are also, you know, not taking into account all those Muslim women who should and can be a part of the movement. So while I understand that like the this entire debate about keeping the state and religion separate is relevant in Pakistan, you cannot actually turn to Islamophobia yourself while trying to sort of eradicate the problem. Because at the end of the day, it is political weaponization. It's not the religion that's the problem. It's the interpretation of the religion and the kind of mass discrimination that goes on in Pakistan. So, I mean, what Maria was saying, for instance, there's actually an issue of, like a big issue of forced conversions in, in Sindh, for instance. But at the same time, like when you're talking about women and yet at the same time stripping them away of any kind of agency, not even letting them speak on their own behalf, like who then are you speaking for? 
and i feel that a lot of times like when you talk about islam in feminist movements it becomes a very contentious debate because a lot of women then say you know like okay no like we are just like we're going to remain secular and we just like anybody who agrees with us part of the movement and if you don't you know that's too bad but i really feel that because of that like we're sort of i guess like alienating a lot of women who do find feminism in islam who ascribe to islamic feminism and yet like their feminist politics is fantastic because of the fact that like feminism is so deeply personal to them so i think that we really need to like a lot of what maria has been saying we really need to take those things account within our larger movement also and this is something like a problem that's persisted since a few decades now and it's something that we're hopefully working to address but of course like it is a contentious issue yeah and like i um uh, researching islamic feminism for me like zoya you said i had to look outside pakistan even though the feminist movement in pakistan is so rich um and has so much to give anyone who either wants to join or wants to research but to find that sort of com- like that that language to speak to muslim women i had to look outside pakistan for that um which i felt a bit let down on almost in a sense that i i wanted to look within my own country to be able to find that language and then i i i had to not do that you know i had to look outside um and and for me that was quite a quite a profound mo- moment for myself as a researcher as well um so so absolutely i i feel what you're so- saying zoya so much even though, um, even though like we actually have some great islamic feminists you know who've done a lot of work like there's been some really great scholarship by people like humaira iktidar um sadaf ahmed and like if you see in the 2000s particularly like there's been some great work done in this regard but the problem then is that there is this other side which completely kind of i guess devalues that work and that's not you know i and this is where like i guess like my reading of sabah mahmood or like you know like i guess the relevance of sabah mahmood for our movement becomes so important also because i think she kind of the fact that she studied a particular community in egypt and sort of completely sort of i guess decided to leave her biases at the door you know like i think that that's a great sort of exercise in not only humanity but also in what, practicing one's own feminist principles and i think we really ought to do that more within our own sort of movement as well we're talking about agency so much and and being able to claim our own voices i just uh, i and zoya you talked about placards at the aurat azadi march as well something that has been really profound for me is coming to ireland and holding placards during rallies to for to repeal the eighth amendment and holding up a placard that said my body my choice mm-hmm. and then to see one of the l- loudest rallying cry coming out of the aurat marches in pakistan as mera jism meri marzi which translates to the same in urdu um was phenomenal for me and to see the debate the backlash that came- also that is because of that one placard because you you decided that you want to talk about your body on your own terms i mean the hue and cry over this one placard has just been astounding um I, the kind of debates that have been going on you know just using the word 
jism which means body on a placard is such a point of contention for so many people particularly so many men in pakistan that this is the basis like this is the hill that you used to die on you know when they say that like ban these marches or like these women are terrible human beings and they're vulgar and what not and a lot of these women by the way who were holding these placards were also islamic feminists for instance i remember there was a girl who covered her head who had a great placard in her hand which said low bed came mai sahi se like look i'm sitting properly and basically she was sitting with her legs open like comfortably and even that became such a problem for people even though she was speaking from personal experience a lot of times in pakistan we're told exactly how to sit we're supposed to cross our legs we're supposed to just be very stiff you know so it's about simple take minimum battles. space take minimum space like exactly. take as, as less space as you can <laughs> and i think the reason why there's been such a bad like a backlash of this kind is because you know like women are finally deciding to talk about their own personal experiences on their own terms and the small but significant battles that they have to fight on a daily basis and they're taking up space like arpita said they're taking up space online Absolutely. um they're taking up space on the streets when they march you know they're taking up space in a room when they choose to to speak um 100% uh, you know uh, it you reminded me of something sahar which is again about the repeal movement these are thoughts that ha- i comes back to me again and again like you said my that uh, placard of my body and my choice for me it was very powerful uh, and at the same time very heartbreaking to see savita's face everywhere so i don't know whether uh, for marian zoya savita halapanavar uh, was a, an indian woman who was denied abortion here and she basically died over days with uh, medical staff refusing to do anything and like the same thing basically happens like savita got visibility she became the face of the movement in a way because she died right like she she had to give up her body and her life to get that agency but there are hundreds and thousands of immigrant women in ireland and they have issues which currently is not visibilized by the feminist movement and by the feminist organizations at all issues like casteism for example issues like domestic violence we all know for example that during this pandemic there has been rising cases of domestic violence all over the country rising cases there has been statistic after statistics about the rise of uh, domestic violence in ireland as well so i think it's pretty safe to assume that there has been rise in domestic violence within the immigrant communities in ireland as well right however if you see the government efforts to challenge that you will find that the website that has been set up by the governments of ireland specifically for this purpose is only in one language that is english the fact that now you know this is not the owners is on the one hand i totally understand that the onus is not on the feminist groups but on the other hand the question then becomes how do you make it visible to the government that these are needed so do you create pressure groups of immigrant women outside the present feminist organizational structures or do you become pressure groups inside the already existent feminist spaces to make these issues visible because these like that erasure was so marked and sahar we have been talking about this as well right like 
how is it that nobody is concerned about the immigrant women or the fact that these the, this all these campaigns might not be automatically reaching to them just because of the language barrier simi i i want to speak to what arpita said uh, sahar um, you know because what she said about savita about that whole um, you know how savita's face hounding her because you saw it everywhere similar thing happened in india a couple i mean it's been happening but something very uh, current and which got international attention was a gang rape and then murder of uh, a very young dalit girl in hatras in india so you know for us marginalized women and in different contexts marginalization um, uh, can be defined differently at least in the indian uh, or south asian context being a survivor is not good enough you have to be a victim you have to have been murdered raped your body mutilated for the media and for the state to wake up and say oh my god this was terrible this shouldn't have happened i personally because i have worked with survivors of sexual violence i have worked with women who have been gang raped um in in the states of uttar pradesh and others where not one so i worked with seven women not i documented their stories in detail not one of the 23 24 rapists was ever convicted because all these seven women were alive to tell their story and of course the fact that they belonged to a certain community and they were raped by men of a certain upper caste and majority community added on to this it's extremely heartbreaking and you know like like just keep reminding me what arpita says you know that you need to have a victim this this it's so difficult for us feminists really to uh, you know work with survivors something that's coming out to me in the conversation all three of you are having with me is uh, activism um and organization right um and it's making me think is the separation of activism and academia a privilege that only western scholars can afford i feel like we we hear this conversation and we hear these arguments a lot on how activism and academia need to sit on opposite ends almost to make our scholarship palatable and easily understood almost linking it to the way maria was talking about in the, in the context of uh, amnesty and other larger ngos as well to have our work be respected as impartial researchers and to have value we need to keep our activism on the side almost but what's coming out to me in this conversation is i feel like it's much easier to argue for the dispassionate separation of academia and activism when you don't occupy so many intersecting marginalized identities it's much easier to do that so do we how do we combine our activism and academia does activism even exist in academia does academia make it into activism i mean i feel like i'm uh, i feel like this is a very open ended and perhaps um, multi-pronged question uh, which might be a little unfair to all three of you because i'm sort of lumping it all in together but i'd love to hear your thoughts on this um so maybe we could start with arpita since you are our resident senior academic on this on this uh, panel today oh i i never thought i would hear senior academic for at least another 20 years <laughs> but thanks for that um you know for me uh, like there are two parts of this question first is what academia expects from you and we know that forever coming from post colonial countries and um, these kinds of intersectional identities for so long scholars like us like have have se- have been seen as native informants right and to push back against that to to become theorists of our own right has been a struggle conduct through like generations of scholars so from that context you can see that 
how it led to this dissociation of um, academia and activism, which was seen as necessary to be taken seriously, not only as a scholar who just gives you subjective information, but as a theorist in their own right, right? But on the other hand, what is your scholarship for? Who are you writing for? Who are you thinking for, right? For example, the discipline of international relations, and I have written about this, and I recently I, I had this uh, Twitter conversation on this as well. I think there, the very strong, there are four very basic questions. Who are you writing for? Who does it benefit? Who does it not talk about and why? why it does not talk about it. And when you start trying to answer these questions, you will see more and more that all these will lead to you if you want to try to have a scholarship that is egalitarian and a scholarship that does not promote racism, does not promote any kind of discrimination. You want to contribute, uh, you want to uh, practice a scholarship that contributes towards progress of humanity in any basic sense, small or large, you will see that uh, you, your work will eventually lead to a form which is seen as activism. So for me personally, for example, that has become, that has come to mean that I have started interacting more and more on public non-academic platforms and start talking about the things I research about because I realized that uh, writing academic papers, which will probably mostly read by 10 or 20 people, is a waste of all the um, resources that are being spent on me as a researcher, right? And I would like to say that I think this there is more and more appreciation about uh, this question that you raised when European Union is investing more on works which kind of collaborate and bring together both. And for, uh, for example, uh, Irish Research Council has something called Enterprise Scheme, which uh, my project is a part of that scheme as well, which is seen as a collaboration between a university and an enterprise organization to, in order to facilitate bringing them together, working together towards finding a common solution. So uh, ActionAid Ireland and DCU both come together in my project trying to talk about sexual violence survivors' access to medical health care and how to improve that, right? And I think that for me that this project, I, I'm, I'm very, I, I started doing this because it was for the first time I could see how I can bring the non-academia part into the academic part. I think that's what we're trying to do with this podcast as well. So yes. this conversation, I feel, is incredibly important to do exactly that. Do you think that there's an, there's an analogous situation in universities as well, in, in, the, in, in academic spaces? Or do you think I'm unfairly putting too much of an onus on institute, academic institutions to occupy this, this sort of larger narrative? I think universities, uh, historically speaking, has have been colon uh, colonial uh, spaces very much uh, created, used, and still used to promote specific kinds of knowledge systems for to benefit specific kinds of agendas to promote certain kinds of knowledge systems above others. Like our kind, for a long time, the kind of research that we all, all four of us do, or kind of work all four of us do, would be considered marginal, right? So the the decolonizing forces that the decolonizing ideas that we are currently start we have started talking about and this has only started and i really believe in 
the idea that we need to understand that as human beings, we are very transient creatures, right? So these movements, we, it, they don't start with us, they don't end with us. We are parts of those systems. So to answer your question very directly, are there with universities or with corporates or with these large multinational non-governmental organizations which are uh, trying to work towards equal equalities or equal creating equal spaces these are not finished products these are not finished spaces these are very much politicized spaces with their own issues with their own um, aspirations which are very much unfinished and there is complete recognition of that fact so just as we do not um, expect universities to be these ideal spaces and we are all working towards but we are all working towards making it more ideal right so we are all recognizing the fact that universities in ireland for example are still predominantly white for example we will see that the number of non-white phd students are disproportionately high when we consider the number of non-white faculties or non-white not even tenured faculty, but non-white, uh, untenured faculty as well. So these kind of Im imbalance in the power structures, like Maria pointed out in um, Amnesty, right? So these kinds of imbalances are present everywhere. And I think like uh, th these are structures that have to be there. They are imperfect. They are, they are still discriminatory in many senses, but we need to find our ways to find the cracks and kind of keep working and kind of keep finding our spaces to do the kind of work that we want to do. As an, as an activist who's been working on issues of Muslim women, whether it's family law reform or it's violence against women or, uh, you know, discrimination in different sectors, I've often been told, and I have an interest in academia, um, I've, I've often been told that I must enter academia to be taken more seriously as an activist. And I've never understood... Uh, this because I know so many amazing activists who who might not have a bookish or academic knowledge of issues, but who are far more powerful uh, in the kind of work that they do. But at, at the same time, I'd like to say that my activism informs my academic interest and my academic interest also helps me with my activism in a lot of ways. When I was at SOAS, for instance, I, I, I was there at, with a scholarship pursuing my second master's. And I remember having a conversation uh, with a very close Pakistani friend of mine over there called Sahar Ahmed, <laughs> asking her, what should my dissertation be? And then I remember, uh, Sahar, you telling me, why don't you write on something that interests you? And uh, which, which uh, brings me to what Arpita said, what is my scholarship for and whom will it benefit? And I wrote an entire dissertation, and I got a first class, by the way, in my dissertation on Islamic feminism and how the work that I'm doing back home with this organization called the Bhartiya Muslim Mahila Andolan or the Indian Muslim Women's Movement on personal law reform, despite the backlash that they're getting from uh, a lot of other people because of various reasons, um, it sort of really helped me. And I feel proud that I've been able to contribute to research using my activism. And maybe that's how I want to move forward. Maybe if, when I'm thinking about pursuing a PhD, I want to pursue a PhD um, in, in an area where, like um, again, like Arpita said, which will benefit a lot of people. I'm not good at jargons. And I've often been told, it's okay. You don't have to have academic jargon. 
till you have the understanding and you know what you want to research about and whom it's going to benefit it's okay as an activist it's fine you don't just have to uh, you know cater to those 12 people who understand those big words and i cannot use big words i do not know big words but my i have ideas i know that i can express those ideas and maybe that for me is um, academia to reach out to as many people as possible with my ideas i don't know i may be wrong but yeah no your ideas are big and your words are big also maria so <laughs> i wanted to sort of add to this also and say that sometimes you know when we think of academic scholarship what exactly is it why do we privilege certain certain forms of knowledge and scholarship over others and this is something that i learned during my time at soas as well because a i would refuse to write about anything but the pakistani feminist movement because i am a firm believer of writing what one knows of and what one experiences so obviously like finding blind spots in what i was writing about and what i knew was also something that i would sort of document but i found myself at odds with the academic experience because i felt that i was writing about something that i wasn't a part of at the time which was the pakistani feminist movement and i mean apart from the general fomo that i felt of course like i just i don't know like there was this i felt very disingenuous because i almost felt as if i was writing for a very sort of limited privileged audience my writing wasn't really doing anybody any favors but when i came back one thing that i learned was that for me knowledge is just movement building like this is it it is it emanates from the spaces that i'm a part of and i constantly then started questioning you know that like how can we perhaps break down the kind of academic work that we have been doing or others around us have been doing and how can we for instance take that knowledge into like the study circles that we conduct for instance and how can we uh, speak about this knowledge in urdu so for me like accessible forms of knowledge are very important and i, I and i think that that is something that i personally at least wish to be like working on in the future i am actually i don't know if i'll do a phd i don't know if i want to separate myself even like momentarily from the movement that i'm a part of and for that like i feel that it's not just writing that's a form of knowledge it's it's speaking about the movement it's it's interacting with like your fellow comrades and feminists like i think there's just knowledge all around us but we kind of just have to think about whose scholarship is it as arpita and maria have constantly been pointing out and who am i speaking over as well i don't want to speak for anybody but myself and i want to let other people speak for themselves and i that's why i guess we also believe in like sort of collating on like i don't know like bringing forth shared forms of knowledge and scholarship as well that is it okay that i write or i detail about an issue which is not inherently faced by me or by my community and arpita i think you will agree when you when you know when you see back home how our causes are appropriated is beyond me i mean of course when i was at soas i saw that all the white professors were talking about islamophobia even my um, uh, my i took a paper where i was learning about pakistan and the blasphemy laws etc in pakistan and i was reading articles where the courts were giving priority to uh, research by a white scholar by a white professor instead of an activist who was actually working on the ground on the issue zina laws etc for instance and i was amazed and i thought to myself and i said can i as an indian muslim woman be sitting in london and england and america and talking about uh, you know talk and not just talking talking with authority and writing with authority about white supremacy or other issues i don't have that confidence 
So back home in India, there are women and men who belong to certain, uh, you know, privileged background who talk about my issues and what I am facing with such authority. I'm left aghast. I'm like, really? Is this what I'm facing? Is this what women in my community are facing? I mean, your articulation is better than what I can imagine my own women articulating. You know, you're taking the mic away from them. I don't know why is there this lack of confidence sometimes in a in in a lot of us, um, and I think this also stems. It's not the lack of confidence that we have; it's the overconfidence sometimes that the others have, and uh, maybe we're too humble. <laughs> I'm just yeah being narcissistic here, calling myself <laughs> humble. But yeah, it's amazing. I I'm just amazed at the similarities of the conversation that we are having, and the different experiences that we have are just so not different. I don't even think it's academic appropriation sometimes like literally things like you know like somebody would say something from their like based on their own experiences and the next thing you know someone else is like tweeting about that experience and actually oh, yes. like, the experiences <laughs> there is like there is so much intellectual appropriation going yes. on and like speaking for the voiceless or saying that oh you know like I understand like I don't know for instance the Pashtun Tahafuz movement like firsthand even though you may not be a part of it and because that movement itself is being silenced like i just i find it horrifying when like and it happens all around us like i think just citation as a, that, that is why like citation as a practice is so important to me personally yes. at least and it's not just like academic citation it's literally just crediting the person who has told you has been kind enough has been brave enough to tell you about their experiences you say that this is what they have said and it's unfortunate that like i think everybody because everybody wants to be the flag bearer of like prog- like yes. whatever pro- progressive movement exists in pakistan like they go on to speak on behalf or rather like over people who actually should be speaking and given a uh, space in the first place we need allies we don't need appropriators exactly um i i can i just come back to what zoya said first about what constitutes knowledge because it uh, it it spoke to me so much zoya because i wish academia uh is faster in reflecting to the changing different mediums of knowledge that we use the different way knowledge is propagated and shared and exchanged because if you look at how academia still works if you look at say for example promotions on what basis are promotions given right it is based it is based on how many uh, journal articles academic journal articles in q1 journals you have published how many books you have published by which publications what this does is completely erases any form of or community work that you have been doing any form of uh, activist work that you have been doing for example but these works are take so much time and space for non white scholars right supporting non white students communicating with non white students being part of promotions of uh, edi uh, ventures of the universities for example right these are things that take up so much of our time and effort and intellectual space but they are not part of what constitutes you are evaluated as a scholar well so i, I wish what zoya said is found more consonance in academic spaces right and and i'm so glad that both maria you and zoya talked about your time at soas i think that's an incredibly important aspect like maria said maria and i met at soas uh, we both did our masters there zoya also did her masters at at soas at a different time 
Alpata is in Ireland, where I am at the moment as well. I think these contexts are incredibly important for where we are and what we do. Let's be honest, this podcast audience is likely to be overwhelmingly white, right? Mm -hmm. We're producing it in Ireland, in and with the support of an Irish university, in English rather than Urdu, Hindi, Bangla, Punjabi, which are just some of the four languages that I know that we know between the four of us. Mm -hmm. Ireland is a post-colonial country. It has a complicated relationship to empire. But realistically, this podcast is probably going to be one of the most radical acts of self-expression available to me, at least, right? Four brown women with no white intervention having a conversation. To me, that's inherently powerful. But am I deluding myself? And I'd really like to hear the three of you chime into this. Am I deluding myself by thinking that this conversation is a powerful act? Or to paraphrase Audre Lorde and the citational politics that Zoya talked about being so incredibly important, <laughs> Am I fooling myself by trying to use the master's tool to dismantle the master's house? Is this just um, an exercise of futility on my part? I, I'd love to hear all three of your thoughts. I do think that the space that you have, Sahar, it did not come to the space that we have today of having this conversation in a podcast hosted by a university which has very decided colonial roots, uh, not very far in history. I think this is this is not been possible in a day and we are um, benefiting from the struggles and the struggle for space of generations probably that we are here today the four of us um, also technological innovations I might add I just would like to go to talk about Ireland as a space and uh, uh, like because in the we are talking in the context of us as racialized bodies Ireland's relation to racial politics is evolving very fast right? Uh, in the past two decades, I think Ireland has seen constitution of its immigrant population change and enlarge to a large extent. And I have been trolled for saying this before, and but I will continue and keep raising this in all Irish platforms that Ireland has been disingenuous in a, to an extent in accepting its position or its uh, own um, contribution to British imperialist forces, as much as it has recognized it's how it has been subjected to the imperial policies. So, for example, talking about spaces, sir, uh, let's talk, if we talk about the Emigration Museum in Dublin, for example. So the Emigration Museum basically talks about all the Irish people who have uh, emigrated from, uh, from Ireland to outside of Ireland because of the, primarily because of, because of the famine, but also over the years for various reasons. And I find that there needs to be a conversation about the uh, Irish people who went to the South Asia as British soldiers, who were part of the British army there, who were known as one of the most brutal segments of the British army. And these, I understand that these are conversations which are difficult to raise in a country, which is also post-colonial in many senses. So Ireland has suffered because of colonization, but Ireland has also been part of the colonizing force. And in order to understand the racial politics or where Ireland is today, we need to understand where it has come from. We need to understand the, all the Irish missionaries who have been going on proselytizing missions to India and South Asia across time. I, I want to answer your question, Sahar, with the uh, uh, experience of my activism. This question that you asked is very, very tricky also because I keep oscillating between do I use platforms of the people that I have been 
critical of, not in, in a bad way, but at least been questioning to further my own cause. Is it okay? And then, you know, there's one fine day, some of us from similar backgrounds from Dalit Muslim uh, and Adivasi communities, you're sitting and talking, some friends. And we said, you know, why not? Because it's taken us years years and years to come uh, where we are and our struggles we have to have had to struggle so much because of the intersectionality of that discrimination and that marginalization that we've had to face i mean you know sahar about my struggles to even get a house on rent i've written about it openly in the media as well so i think there is a certain kind of influence that uh, at least you know in my in the development sector that people who belong to a certain caste and class occupy so what i personally do is i take up the platforms that um, they have to talk about my own cause. That gives me two things. One, it makes sure that I am talking about my own cause. And two, I'm not letting them appropriate my, my struggles. And uh, I'm taking the mic away. I'm taking the mic away from them on their own platform. And this is the way I'm building power in a different way. And I'll give you a short example and end. I am now going to start my own organization. And this organization is going to be built up of women from marginalized communities. There's going to be allyship, but there will never, ever be appropriation. And we will not allow it because we've, we've lived through that appropriation. I believe in allyship. So then I will have my own platform now where I am going to bring in all the learnings that I have from the other platforms and then use it. And, you know, why not? And I think what you're doing is great. I know the kind of struggles that you have gone through in the past few years to be where you are and to sit and have a podcast episode of your own with three other brown women. This is not easy. I know it, right? So hats off to you and take up the spaces. We need to go occupy all the spaces that we can and good luck to us. <laughs> I feel so validated and seen. This is excellent. <laughs> and also, you all heard it here. First, folks, Maria is dropping her new, this is like an album launch, but Maria is <laughs> no. dropping her new initiative right here, right now. <laughs> you go, Maria. We are with you. <laughs> Yay. And it's called Zaria, by the way. So it's going to be means. Yes, it's me and my friend Ashwini. Ashwini is a Dalit. She's a, J- she's a PhD from JNU. I would just like to add to what Arpita and Maria are, uh, Maria are saying because, um, I mean, of course, I completely agree that fighting for this space must have been very difficult, but it's such an important and valuable act, you know, on your part. And I think just the fact that four brown women are having this conversation for an international audience is 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 a radical act in itself as well. I also, however, feel that, I mean, at least as far as my own feelings are concerned, like I got really scared, by the way, like A, I hate public speaking. Secondly, I think speaking about an entire country, speaking about progressive movements in yeah. an entire country and speaking about a movement that I, I happen to be a part of, like it's a great act of responsibility. It's something that scares me to no end. While it's cathartic for me as well, like I just, I feel that I am bearing the burden of representing the movement the right way. And I don't even know what that is. Also, who am I to speak for an entire movement? Who am I to speak on behalf of women, queer people, other marginalized communities in Pakistan? I am a very privileged person. I don't ever, like every time somebody asks me to speak about like the feminist movement in Pakistan, I'm like, why me, you know? So I don't know, maybe it's also imposter syndrome on my part. I mean, Maria was describing this earlier as well. I think we as women kind of live with this imposter syndrome, really wish I had that kind of confidence that so many other people who just sort of BS their way through life like have. But I I do think that, I just I just want people to know that 
it's important to debunk one's biases about you know like whatever one would call like a third world or developing country i think that pakistan is a lot more complex than what people sort of make it out to be it's not there is like painting it black or white is absolutely futile because obviously we have our own complex history of colonialism of 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 state oppression of 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 uh you know like military oppression as well and of movements i think like our history is really rich and i really just hope and wish that people more people keep speaking about it even if it's just to amplify those movements rather than sort of i don't know like patting themselves on the back and saying you know what oh my god we're doing such great work i mean we're really sort of i feel that i'm a very insignificant person who's a part of something that's much larger that's that's rich in terms of its history and present and future and yeah you know that meme um that we see on online a lot um in term in response to imposter syndrome faced by women and racialized minorities that carry yourself with the confidence of a mediocre white man i think i think that's that's i think that the, the yes <laughs> yeah yeah we're getting out of this is that maybe <laughs> this is what we all need i i think i think this is a very powerful point to to sort of bring us to our last thing that i really want to hear um all four of you talked about because we're talking about allyship a lot and we're talking about what that means for ourselves also to speak for others who require our allyship but then also how to build these movements from within uh, organizations or structures that we ourselves finding ourselves to be minoritized and we need allyship from the majority we've talked about state power and how that impacts our work and i mentioned earlier that there's a long rich history in south asia of cross border solidarity within feminist and progressive movements but we need to be realistic there's four of us talking from two countries that have incredibly hostile relationships with each other right and this is now that that cross border solidarity has been rendered practically impossible because of the tensions between the two nations they seem to just be getting worse and worse as time as time goes on i i would love to hear your thoughts um and maybe we can start with you zoya as someone who's actively working on the ground in pakistan right now how can that tradition be revived in the current climate um i'd love to hear what you have to say is an international approach a possible solution i'm thinking for example like myself and arpita being in a third place in like ireland is maybe that the way forward what do you suggest i mean i think an international approach is absolutely essential because there's so many parallels to be drawn you know um in regards to like other movements in in south asia itself but also across the world and i also just think that like it's high time that we learn and we realize that we really need to hold our allies close and allyship close as maria has been saying and others have been saying as well i feel that south asian feminist solidarities have always been there have been fractured this these past few years because of the rising tensions between india and pakistan in particular but i i mean as somebody who has worked with you know like feminists across the border as well there is just so much to learn you know the histories may be somewhat different but so many of our experiences are are, are shared and and so much so much of the trauma that we carry is also there is a sort of an element of trauma being very sort of similar in certain ways even though of course like everybody's personal experiences differ and i i think that that's the only way like we can negate the narrative of our own states you know and and the kind of violence that 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 narrative those narratives inflict upon our bodies i think that just the fact that like we are having this conversation right now means that we we reject state narratives you know which is why like we're here 
to build like allyship as well as to remind ourselves that we're not in the struggle alone this is a struggle that's happening the world over and it's just high time that we realize that we can't continue to sort of work in silos anymore such a tricky situation right now in india you know as we speak there is so much that's happening uh, which puts us uh, muslims the largest minority in the country at so much risk and i'm trying to think i'm trying to think of allyship and i'm trying to think of cross border allyship and i'm thinking even if i say these words without a thinking thought i'll be called an anti national and uh, laws which will put me behind bars uh, on non bailable charges will be applied on me uh and uh it's it's um it's a scary thought but it wasn't like this uh, maybe a, maybe a decade ago you know i've i've been i've visited you sahara i've come to pakistan i visited you um and we have we shared we, we shared similar stories we have so much in common you and i can actually work on so many issues together and similarly with my uh, you know other pakistani friends as well uh but having said that i also think um uh, based on my own personal experiences of work outside of the country it's much easier when you're based outside like for me right now to work with zoya on an issue would be so difficult but to work with you or other friends sitting in ireland or america and other parts and talking about my issues would be so much easier um and a lot of times in country solidarity i i think i've talked enough about allyship appropriation etc it gives us a lot of power also you know if i so if i've written a piece about what i'm facing in india as an indian muslim woman and uh, if it resonates with somebody who's living outside of the country is not indian is muslim and who understands is pakistani also it gives me a lot of power but i really don't know at this juncture that we are in indian history so it's even feasible for me to say hi zoya can we work on this particular project together for instance i work on online violence against women but i'll have to think like 100 times oh, should i reach out to zoya and ask her to write a paper with me because there's a paper that says maria salim and zoya rehman oh my god what interest mm-hmm. you have in zoya rehman's country that's the first question that will come up you know so we have to be so so careful security reasons for things like these no i think this is a really powerful point to perhaps bring our conversation to a close because i mean if we come back to the, the larger theme of the season of the podcast which is which is power and all its modalities and manifestations if there's one thing that's coming out very very clearly from listening to the three of you is how all three of you have chosen to take markers of oppression or marginalization and use them to actually wield to, to wield that power that, that that has been used against you as a means of radical transformation and as a means of movement building and solidarity building and fighting for yourselves and other people's rights i i'd like to really thank you uh, on behalf of the whole team of the public sphere and just personally as well getting to, to carve out this space and time to have this kind of conversation with three women i admire i look up to and whose work informs so much of my own thinking and praxis as well um has been hugely important for me the public sphere is hosted by the trinity longroom hub and is produced by don seymour cross sahar ahmed shivan kalahan elizabeth foley dr claire mariarty and dr lilith acadia with many thanks to Angus O'Loughlin for the jingle. For more information about the topics discussed in this podcast, you can visit our show notes at bitly forward slash publicsphere. 
hosted by the Trinity Long Room website. Thank you for listening.